0: I'll let you um, look through the website and the announcements for other information, things coming up, lots of great things uh, coming uh, in the life of our church this fall. But for now, if you have Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 is where we are this morning, and if you're using one of those uh, black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 16 uh, is where you will find today's, today's text. Even though we're in Genesis, I'll start by talking a little bit about the book of 1 Peter this morning. Sometime in the early 60s AD, the Apostle Peter penned this letter to Christians who were scattered throughout the territory of Asia Minor. And these were Christians that that Peter says, they're on the margins of society. They're citizens of the kingdom of God living as exiles in the world. And as exiles, they're facing all kinds of trial, uh, all kinds of suffering. And so after his introduction, really the first thing that he really gets into in that letter is he reminds these men and women of the salvation that is theirs in Christ. And anchored in the assurance, really, that that all God has promised to be for them in Jesus. He says in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, "...in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith is is one of these words, is one of these concepts, the meaning of which becomes cheapened, Uh, becomes watered down, particularly in Christian subculture. We use that word a lot. And so it can quickly become the stuff of Christian coffee mugs uh, and keychains and throw pillows. But genuine faith, per the Apostle Peter, really per the entirety of the Word of God, genuine faith is forged and tested in the fires of the impossible. It's, It's tested in those moments where God's ways don't make sense. When it feels like God is absent where it feels like God is doing wrong by you, where your circumstances seem completely incompatible with what you know to be true about God and what you know to be true about the promises of God. So consider this with me this morning. A lot of what might pass for faith, a lot of what you and I might call faith, is actually untested assent. Untested assent. And I don't say that to to penalize or to condemn anyone for being untested. You can't control how and when you will be tested in your life. You can't control how and when you'll suffer. You can't control how and when you'll encounter trial or tribulation in your life. And for reasons far beyond our understanding, it seems that some people begin lives of immense suffering in the womb before they're even born. And other people go throughout really the entirety of most of their life with minimal suffering. We have no idea why. And so even for those people that, that go through life with minimal suffering, many of you know, as I know, uh, are completely sincere in their untested assent in that faith that they have. But the question is, for us, will that sincerity hold up? Will it, will it bear up? Will our faith prove itself to be genuine in the fires of the impossible? So one of a few personal examples I could share here. Um, I believe, I'm convinced, convictionally, uh, God provides. I'm convinced of that. I've seen God provide for me and many others throughout my life, but when it comes to things like jobs, uh, when it comes to things like finances, that is largely, for me, untested assent. I've never gone through uh, an extended period of time without a job. I've never gone through an extended period of time without a paycheck. So as sincerely as I believe, As convinced as I am in my own conscience that God is a God who provides, how would I actually respond if my untested assent were ever shoved full force into the fires of testing? Genuine faith is faith that endures testing. That's what Peter is saying in the beginning of his letter. And it's never tested exactly the same way for every person. So it's, it's not that, that you and I must suffer or ex- should expect to suffer in every single aspect of our lives in order to prove faith genuine. But we can be sure that our faith will be tested, will undergo significant testing in at least a few areas in our lifetime. And some of you have been there very recently. Uh, some of you are in the middle of that today, like right in this very moment. You feel immersed in the impossible. And in these moments, whether you're in them now, whether you've been in them, whether you will be in them, while our, our default, uh, our visceral response will be something like to, to cry foul, to get angry with God, to lament the cost, the ultimate reason that our faith is tested, whether it's evident in that moment or not, and often is not, is because that when faith does stand up under the weight of testing, that tested genuineness results in even more assurance for us And it results in even more praise and glory and honor to Jesus, which is really the goal of faith in the first place. So I say all that by way of introduction to say, among all of the memorable episodes of Abraham's life that we are looking at in this series, we've got just a few more weeks, the scandalous one that's recorded in Genesis 22 is perhaps the most memorable. Uh, There is no more difficult test than what Abraham undergoes here. There's no more impossible command than the one that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 22. And so as we jump into that text this morning, uh, through his word, may God prepare us, may God sustain us, may God encourage us to bear up under the testing of our faith. I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love, Genesis chapter 22. I'll start in verse 1 and then read through verse 19. After these things, God tested Abraham Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here, here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. O oh, gracious and most merciful Father, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your word. Lead us by your Holy Spirit, we ask, that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your own image and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. We grant this, and we ask that you would grant this, oh, heavenly Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll spend the rest of of our time this morning really looking at Genesis 22 from two different vantage points. An example of impossible faith and the story of a trustworthy God. An example of impossible faith and the story of a trustworthy God. So first, let's consider Genesis 22 as an example of impossible faith. It starts out in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. And we don't know exactly how much time has passed since the birth of Isaac, but most scholars speculate that Isaac is somewhere between the ages of 10 and 18 here. He's at least strong enough to carry a substantial amount of wood up a mountain. So he's somewhere in that age range. But this is really important. Verse 1 is the narrator's perspective. It's not Abraham's. So reading it years afterward, we today, the original audience centuries ago, begin this episode with the knowledge that this is God testing Abraham. It's very similar, for those of you who might be familiar with Scripture in the book of Job, it's very familiar to how the book of Job begins, Whereas readers, we are given really a behind-the-scenes look at what God is doing. But just like Job, Abraham doesn't know that. You know how at school or maybe your workplace, whenever there's a fire drill, or some kind of emergency drill, there'll be like a voice that comes over the PA, or an email sent out ahead of time, or something that says, you know, this is only a drill. Uh, This is only a test. There's none of that, or no indication of that whatsoever for Abraham here. For Abraham, this is not a drill. This is his life. You know, this is his son. And really, for us, that's the way that the testing works in our lives, too. God doesn't warn us, That he's about to test us. It's only as the the confusing, uh, crushing, impossible circumstances begin to unfold in our lives that maybe we begin to perceive God is testing us. Often it's only in retrospect, even if at all, that we get to grasp something of what God was doing in those moments. So Abraham's test begins when God gives him a command, which is something he has done many times to Abraham before. Years earlier, God told him, leave your homeland, another costly thing. Leave your family, a costly thing. Go to the place that I will show you. And that was not, for Abraham, a drill. Abraham obeyed. He went through with it. He's been living that out for at least 25 years or more at this point. So this command in Genesis 22 even sounds a little bit similar to that one. Go and offer your son on one of the mountains. I will show you. Far beyond, though, that that initial command he received from God to leave his homeland, this, in Genesis 22, is an example of what I'm calling impossible faith. And that's because this command from God makes no sense. If you've been with us here at all for this series looking at Abraham's life, you can't read the first 21 chapters of Genesis without seeing just how important Isaac is to the story. And last week, Casey Horvath was here, and he preached. He reminded us and walked back through just how much fulfillment comes to fruition through the birth of Isaac. So the birth of Isaac is this, is this massive fence post. It's this mile marker in the history of God's redemption. Beginning with Abraham, God has chosen a people for himself. And through them, they will be the means through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But until Isaac, there's no fulfillment of that. That Abraham has no descendants to carry forward this people that will then be the blessings to the world. And so now here, without any further explanation, God commands Abraham to take his son. And God says this so directly to Abraham, it's like painful how he says this. His only son, the son that he loves, and he says sacrifice that son as an offering. And here's why it doesn't make sense. This is the same God who for years has promised this son. It's the same God who made Abraham and Sarah wait for a long time and in the meantime rejected all of their other attempts to secure for themselves an heir. God rejected Lot as the heir. God rejected this servant of their household named Eliezer of Damascus. He rejected Ishmael, their own attempts to kind of take that into their own hands and have another son through another wife. And now Abraham's got to be thinking, that was also that the son of the promise that we've been waiting for for all these years is to be a burnt offering to the very God that promised him. On top of that, one of the ways that Israel was morally distinct from the peoples, the tribes, nations around them in the ancient Near East was that the Israelites didn't do human sacrifice. Those specific laws didn't come till later through Moses, but for the original audience reading Genesis, who would have had that law given to them, it would be inconceivable that the God who forbids human sacrifice would command it as faithful obedience. A scholar named Bruce Waltke summarizes it this way. He says, This command teeters on the edge of morality. Abraham is asked to behave in a way that is illogical, absurd, and to say the least, non-conventional from the human perspective. So think about the conflict that this would be in the moment for Abraham. He's torn between the covenant-making God and the son of that covenant. The words son, and maybe you heard this in the narrative, the words son and father and together, they are repeated throughout this text to highlight just the deep affection that Abraham and Isaac have for one another. The journey takes three days, which means that Abraham has to sit with the thought of killing his son for three days while he walks with him through the wilderness. And if that weren't enough, it's not just that Abraham is going to have to kill his son, he's to offer his son as a burnt offering. Meaning, he'll have to, as a 17th, 18th century author named Matthew Henry says, kill him devoutly. Kill him with all the pomp and ceremony, with all that sedateness and composure of mind with which he used to offer burnt offerings. So this is an impossible command. Where, where God's way really makes no sense, where God's command seems utterly incompatible with God's promises. And yet, we, we read it together, in faith... Abraham obeys. He, he makes that journey, and he does ascend that mountain, and he, and he builds the altar, and he lays the wood on the altar, and he binds the hands and the feet of the only son that he loves. And as he holds out the knife to slaughter him, it's only in that last possible second that God stays his hand, and the God then reveals this has all been for the purpose of testing the genuineness of his faith. And what we learn as we look back on this this account from so many years ago is that the genuineness of our faith in God is really tested through the death of whatever else our faith rests in. The genuineness of our faith in God is really tested through the death of whatever else our faith rests in. So in Abraham's case, that's a person. And Isaac had to be as good as dead before God intervened. As the author of Hebrews reflects back on this, he says that Abraham's hope and expectation at this point wasn't that God was going to stop the slaughter. He thought he was actually going to have to go through with it. Instead, Hebrews 11 verse 19 says this, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Genuine faith in God is tested through the death of whatever else our faith rests in. So whether that's people or possessions or patterns of life and and behavior and thought, each of our hearts is inclined to trust in other things, in lesser things than God. Sometimes it's that that we desire the blessings and the gifts of God instead of God himself. Things like family uh, and friends and health and comforts, and provision, all things that come from God, but we love those things more than we love God himself. Sometimes it's that we devote ourselves to the things of this world, be they noble things, like work, or like causes for justice and mercy in the world, or they could be things we devote ourselves to, could be destructive, overtly sinful things, like addictions, and and destructive patterns of behavior. Our hearts, as the famous reformer John Calvin said, are factories of idols, And as soon as one idol dies, our heart stands ready to manufacture another one right behind it to take its place, if not four more behind it to take its place. But the example of Abraham, the example given here for us to follow, is to keep trusting God, to keep faithfully following God as he brings about the death of those idols. Matthew Henry goes on to say it this way. "Says The best evidence of our fearing God is our being willing to serve and honor him with that which is dearest to us. And to part with all to him or for him. We must tread in the steps of this faith of Abraham. God, by his word, calls us to part with all for Christ. All our sins, though they have been as a right hand or a right eye, or an Isaac. All those things that are competitors or rivals with Christ for the sovereignty of the heart. And we must cheerfully let them all go. If you've been a Christian for a period of time, this might sound great, at least in theory that God is going to put to death your idols. He's going to rip out those things in you which are inconsistent with your faith in him. He's going, to, he's going to expose and tear those things out. Sounds great in theory, until we realize that Genesis 22 is what that actually looks like in real life. Until we realize that that... In order to expose those idols so that he might bring about their death, we are going to endure an intensity of trial and circumstances that push us out over the edge of a cliff so that the the false foundation and all the idols can fall away and all that will be left is the strong arm of God holding us up. The deaths, the, the, the sacrifices that you and I will be called to make, they won't look like Abraham and Isaac. As we'll get into in a second, there's a specific and unique thing that God is doing in this instance. But there will be sacrifices and there will be deaths and there will be impossible circumstances that don't make any sense. Even more specifically, you and I, like Abraham, will find ourselves impossibly torn in conflict between faithfulness to God and people we love. And and I know many of you have experienced that already in your life and some of you are experiencing it right now. Torn in conflict between faithfulness to God and people we love. Where faithfulness to God will create a a substantial and difficult impact on a relationship that is really important and really valuable to you. It might mean at times, it does mean at times that you can't marry the person that you're dating. It might mean at times, it can mean at times, that you can't affirm a friend or a family member or at least some aspect of their life or what they're devoting themselves to. It might mean that you your, your relationship with your coworkers or your classmates change substantially because you can't affirm and get behind them in some kind of unethical practice that they're involved in. As impossible as that feels, as costly as that is, we must, and, and learn from the example of Abraham, we must choose faithfulness to God in those moments. And that doesn't mean we, we detach and we disengage from people that we love. It doesn't mean we lack compassion or stop loving and pursuing relationships. It does mean That the idols of acceptance, the idols of affirmation, even the the idols of relationships themselves at times must die. When that happens, choose impossible faith. And by way of encouragement, think of it this way choose impossible faith when that happens because the more impossible it seems, the more that, that that shakes you to your core you can be all the more certain that the deepest and strongest competitors for the affections of your heart are the ones that are being exposed and are being ripped out by God. It's those moments that require impossible faith where untested assent is really transformed into tested genuineness. And so see in Abraham, take heart and find camaraderie in Abraham that impossible faith is what God uses to bring about tested genuineness. That's the example of impossible faith in Genesis 22. Second, and I would say even more importantly, Genesis 22 is the story of a trustworthy God. When you and I contemplate uh, this story, maybe, maybe you've even been thinking about this this morning since we read it. I was thinking about it this week. How would I respond were I in Abraham's shoes here? I mean, what? Many of you are parents. You have kids. It really is impossible. How would you respond were you in Abraham's shoes and maybe that would lead you, as it did me, to start to speculate. How will I respond the next time one of those areas of untested ascent is brought through a fire of the impossible? Will I make it? Uh, will my faith prove itself to be genuine in that moment? I hope so. I think so. But until that happens, I, I don't know. We can't really know until those things come about. And because of that, if all we have in Genesis 22 is Abraham's example, it will wreck us. Because what will happen when your faith fails? There's so much more, though, praise God, than Genesis 22. Let's not forget as we go into this text what we already know about Abraham. His faith, as we have seen, fails. Though he passes this test from God with an incredible, impossible faith, His faith has faltered in some spectacular ways over the course of his life. So the reason, the ultimate God-glorifying, written-for-our-instruction reason why Abraham's faith remains steadfast in this critical moment of his life is because it displays the story of the redemption of God. It displays specifically that in the story of God, the life and the redemption of the world will be found in the faithful obedience of one man. And it displays that in the story of God... It is through the sacrifice of an only beloved son that God will destroy sin and death and reconcile the world to himself. Don't miss that in Genesis 22, or you will be tempted to call something that is beautiful ugly. With our our modern sensibilities, we can read a passage like this, we can hyper-focus in on how God's command seems so inconsistent with God's promises. And we might be so scandalized by that that we conclude That we cannot trust a God who would require Abraham to sacrifice his own son. That struggle, those questions, they're completely understandable. They're important ones to wrestle through. But they can also lead us, they can blind us to the point, they can lead us to disdain the point that the beautiful reality of, of Genesis 22 really points to. Abraham obeyed here in the face of every reason not to. But not only Abraham, and maybe you heard this as well. The narrative suggests that Isaac, too, did not resist this. He obeyed his father even in the face of his own death. And their faithful obedience, both Abraham's and Isaac's, looks forward to this future day where a distant son of Abraham will faithfully submit his will to God in another impossible way. Where a distant son of Abraham will, like Isaac, be led to the slaughter and not open his mouth who will, like Isaac, even be forced to carry the wood for his own sacrifice on his back up the mountain. The impossible faith, the active obedience of both Abraham and Isaac, look forward to the day that the life of the world will be found in the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who wasn't just faithful in one critical moment of his life, but was faithful in all of the moments of his life. But not only that. God, in this instance, mercifully, stays Abraham's hand before he sacrifices Isaac. He doesn't go through with what he originally commands Abraham to do. But he will go through with it. Centuries later, it won't be the sacrifice of Isaac or another one of God's followers. It will be the sacrifice of his son, his only son, the son who the Apostle John tells us is his beloved son, the son in whom he is well pleased. So when Abraham says here in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering. The words that come out of Abraham's mouth in that moment are a prophetic utterance beyond anything he could possibly be aware of in that moment. It's like when Caiaphas, the high priest in the first century, says, uh, he's looking to entrap Jesus, he's looking to uh, plot the death of Jesus, and he says, it is better that one man die for for the nation than the whole nation perish. He has no idea how true those words are that are coming out of his mouth. God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering, and it will be his own son, Jesus Christ, who is, as the Apostle John says, the lamb of the world, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So don't miss this. uh, Don't disdain this. Don't only look to Genesis 22 as an example to follow, because really there is, in the, the unity of Scripture and in the unity of the redemptive story of God, a spotlight here that points its way forward into the darkness and pushes that darkness back. The very moment where it appears that God is rescinding his promises to Abraham is the moment that points ahead to the day when on another mountain, actually only a stone's throw from this mountain, God will provide for himself the lamb to take away the sin of the world. God spares the son of Abraham, but he does not spare his own son. And that fact, that that reality that that God spares Isaac but he doesn't spare Jesus means that this story doesn't undermine the trustworthiness of God. It magnifies the trustworthiness of God. Because God will remain faithful to his promises even when that means he must make the greatest sacrifice himself. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he, God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. The God who is there, the God who we gather to worship each week, the God who we scatter to worship and follow each week, is a God who does not spare himself so that he might fulfill all of his gracious promises to you. What could be more trustworthy than that? You Get this, you will fail, God will not, and it's because of that that he will, that he will make good on his promises. It's the, it's the farthest thing from fair, but it's the essence of trustworthiness. And just as he wraps, if we wrap up this text today, verses 15 through 19, On the other side of this testing, when Abraham's faith has proven genuine, God responds with an even stronger affirmation, with even stronger assurances of his promises to Abraham. So tested faith for Abraham is met with even more assurance from God. So when you and I are faced with the impossible, even when we can't see it, be reminded that God is somehow And somewhere at work, transforming our untested ascent into tested genuineness of faith. And as you endure trials, when your faith is tested, when you stand up under that, when it's proven genuine, you will find yourself on the other side, even more confident in God, even more confident in God's trustworthiness, that he will make good on his promises. But when you fail, when your faith falters, see also in Genesis 22, a spotlight on the day where God in Christ provides the fulfillment to his own promises, where God in Christ paid the cost himself, where God sent his only beloved son into the world to be that one man who faithfully obeyed, to be that sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Genesis 22 doesn't cast doubt or undermine the trustworthiness of God. It magnifies the trustworthiness of God. And because God is trustworthy, put your faith in him. May you trust him with the people that are nearest and dearest to your heart. May you trust him with the most precious and important pursuits of your life. May our faith be proven genuine in those most difficult trials and tests that we are called to endure. And may that all result in greater assurance and greater joy for you, and greater praise and greater honor and greater glory for the Christ in whom our faith rests. Amen. Pray for us. Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, you are the one who provides for yourself the Lamb for the offering. And we're grateful that in Genesis 22, we don't only have an example that we're called to follow, but that we have a spotlight on the redemption that you purchased through the work of Christ. Jesus, we are grateful for that work that you have accomplished. We are grateful that our faith rests in you and what you have done and not in the strength of our confidence in you in any given moment or day. We pray that relying on you and the finished work of Christ, that we would stand up under the testing and trial of our faith. That in those moments where it doesn't make sense, where it seems inconsistent with your promises, where it seems impossible, that you would give us grace to stand and that that would lead Not only to greater glory for you, but to greater assurance for us. Make us those who are confident in you. Help us to be those that put our trust in you, even as we struggle to. And as we come to this table today, as we come each and every week, may it be for us a renewal and reminder in your trustworthiness. This is a table that's a testament to your trustworthiness. You make good on what you promise, even when you have to pay the cost yourself. So renew us in that grace this morning as we come. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.